Chapter Nine of the Adventures of a Grain of Dust by Hallam Hawksworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. September. On the housetop, one by one, flocked the synagogue of swallows, met to vote that autumn's gone. Gautier, Life. Farmers who wear feathers. Shh, go easy. Pretend you're a horse or a cow. Observers find that flamingos can be successfully approached by putting on the skin of a cow or a horse. We've gone south with the swallows. It's September, you see, and those queer birds over there are flamingos. The flamingos are a shy lot. I don't know why. I can't think it's on account of their looks, for there's the kiwi, the hornbill, and sakes alive, the puffins. They all have funny noses, too, but none of them are particularly shy. You can walk right up to a papa puffin, almost. Whatever the reason is, the flamingos are very easily frightened, and they're particularly suspicious of human beings. Yet we've simply got to meet them, and have them in this chapter, for they are among the most interesting of the feathered workers of the soil. They just live in mud, build those tower-like nests out of it, walk about in it, and get their meals by scooping up mud and muddy water from the marshes where they live, on the borders of lakes and seas. They strain out the little creatures wriggling about in those scooped-up mouthfuls. 1. Feathered Farmers with Queer Noses What a funny nose! What happened to it? I knew you'd say that. Everybody does. But just watch now and see. That flamingo over there, stalking about on his stilt-like legs, sticks his long neck down to the muddy water, turns that funny nose upside down, and— Why, of all things, is he going to stand on his head? Why Flamingos Have Such Funny Noses No, not that. Don't you see? He's getting his dinner. After that crooked scoop bill, for that's what it really is, a scoop, is filled, the water strains out through ridges along the edge of the bill, and what's left is his food. That picture looks as if it had a tremendous lot of flamingos in it, doesn't it? It has. It's quite a town. Flamingoburg is. Although flamingos are so wary about meeting two-legged people without feathers, that is, human beings, they're very sociable among themselves, and there may be a thousand, even two thousand, pair in a single flamingo city, such as Dr. Chapman studied in the Bahama Islands some years ago. Their nests are cupped-out hollows in little towers of dried mud, raised a foot or so to keep high tides from swamping them. They scrape up the mud with that shovel-like bill. After the conical tower nest is made, the mud piled up and padded into shape with her bill and feet, Mother Flamingo lays one or two eggs and then she goes to setting. You notice there's just one little chick in the nest in the lower left corner of the picture, and just one egg in the nest nearby. With such a low stool to sit on, you wonder what the mother bird does with her long legs. In some pictures in children's nature books of not so many years ago, you'll find her represented as sitting on the nest with her legs hanging down the sides. But you see, that couldn't be. The nest isn't tall enough. What she really does is to fold her legs under her body, just once, of course, at the joint. But they're so long that, even when folded, they reach out beyond her tail. While setting, the lady birds reach around with their long necks, shoveling up things to eat and gossiping, more or less, with the neighbors. For the nests, you notice, are very close together. Sometimes two of them will reach across the narrow alley that separates the residence of Mrs. Flamingo Smith from Mrs. Flamingo Jones, take each other playfully by the bill, and hold together for a while. Maybe this is their way of saying, good morning, or how do you do? 
You'd hardly think it with those long legs of theirs, but flamingos swim beautifully. With their long necks drawn back, the way swans do it, you know, they look very graceful, and a flock of them floating about is one of the loveliest sights in the world. They look like a big fleecy pink cloud resting right on the surface of the water. You can now find only a few flamingos in Florida, where there used to be so many, but go on south into Central and South America and there are thousands of them. They are still fairly numerous in countries bordering the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean. In Persia they are called red geese. And the name isn't so far wrong as you'd think. You notice that, unlike those stilt walkers, the herons, the flamingos have webbed feet. Like geese and ducks also, they have those rows of tooth-like ridges on the edges of their bills. It is these teeth that, coming together, act as strainers. But a queer thing about their bills, besides the funny way they have of crooking down all of a sudden, is that the upper bill is smaller and fits down into the lower. Stranger still, the birds can raise and lower this upper bill like the cover of a coffee-pot. They can move the underbill a little, too, but not to amount to anything. So, you see, there was more to the upside-downness of that bill than there seemed to be at first. The whole arrangement looks odd to us, but it works out beautifully for the birds. When they turn their heads upside down, they can stir the ooze to various depths, as required, by using the upper bill as a plowshare and setting it at different angles. Although they've borrowed some ideas from both the goose and the heron families, the flamingos are so different from either they are put into a family by themselves, the Phenicoteridae. This family name is from two Greek words meaning red-winged. If you want to be formal in speaking of or to a goose, you must refer to her family as the Anserinae, which is Latin for geese. While teeth, like those of the Hesperonis, went out of fashion ages ago, the flamingos have substitutes for teeth which answer their purposes much better. They have little horny spines on their bills and on their tongues. These spines serve as fences to prevent the escape of the minute creatures which the flamingo scoops up with its bill. You notice the spines on the tongue are pointed backward toward the throat, and that's a help, to the flamingo, I mean, for once on that tongue there's no turning back. A late bird, but he gets the worm. Another of the long-nosed earthworkers, as curious in his makeup as the flamingo's, is the kiwi of New Zealand. Like the flamingo, the kiwi uses his queer bill to get his living out of the soil. You've heard the saying, it's the early bird that gets the worm, but while this is true of most birds, it doesn't apply to the kiwis. Although they live on worms, as does Mr. Early Bird of the proverb, they do their feeding by night. And such a funny thing for a bird to do, the kiwis go about with their noses to the ground like a dog smelling after a rat. The reason they do this is that their nostrils are situated not next to their heads as in most birds, but at the end of the bill, and on purpose, for they locate their suppers, the worms in the earth, by the sense of smell, although most birds have a very poor sense of smell. Just after sunset you'll see the kiwis moving about softly, as if they were afraid of scaring away the worms, and with the tips of their bills against the ground. Sniff, sniff, you can actually hear them sniff. There, he's found one. His bill is not only long, but bends rather easily, and that's why, perhaps, he's able to follow up so closely the hints he gets from his nose as to the location of worms, for he usually brings the worm out whole, and not all pulled apart as the robins do it sometimes. He works in soft earth, where most worms are found, 
and generally drives his bill in up to his forehead. If all goes well, he pulls it right out with the worm at the end, but if there is any likelihood of an accident, the kiwi gently moves his head and neck to and fro until he has the soil loosened up and so clears the way. Once the worm is fairly out of the ground, he throws up his head with a jerk and swallows it whole. Because they roam about so much at night, the kiwis sleep much of the day. You'll find them in thickets or in among the forested hills where they make their homes. Sometimes, however, you'll see one standing, leaning on his long bill, like a street idler propping himself up with his cane. If you disturb him, he yawns, as if to say, Oh, these boars, why can't they leave a fellow alone? But don't you go too far and annoy him, or he'll get real peevish and strike at you with his foot. Both Mr. and Mrs. Kiwi drill the earth every day, or rather every night, in their search for worms. But Lady Kiwi does all the excavating when it comes to making the nest. This she does by digging a tunnel, generally under the roots of a tree fern. There she lays two eggs, and then her family cares are practically over for the time being, since it is the male kiwi who does most of the setting. Other long-nosed tunnel diggers you must have seen many a time when you've been fishing, for they are fishers too, Mr. and Mrs. Kingfisher. Their home is at the end of a tunnel in the banks of the stream where they do their fishing. While we're visiting them and making a study of their household arrangements, it's a good thing for us that we're not kingfishers ourselves, for if there's anything that makes the kingfishers mad is to have other kingfishers fooling around their place, or even coming into their front yard. Each pair of kingfishers lays claim to the part of the creek in the neighborhood of their nest as their fishing preserve, and woe betide any other kingfisher that trespasses. Human fishermen and hunters give it out sometimes that kingfishers eat big fish that might otherwise be caught with a hook or a seine. But the fact is, these birds catch only minnows and little shallow-water fish. In digging the tunnels for their nests, the two birds work together, and these tunnels are sometimes fifteen feet long. So you see that with kingfishers scattered around the world as they are, some two hundred species in all, they must have done an enormous amount of ploughing in the course of time to say nothing of what they have done in the way of enriching the soil with fish bones, one of the very best of all fertilizers. The kingfisher's nest wouldn't be at all attractive to some birds, the swallows, for example, who are so particular about having feather beds. It has just a hard earth floor like the cabins of the American pioneers, but the little kingfishers are perfectly contented and happy, for their meals are very plentiful, fairly regular, and the fish are always fresh. Fishing days and other days. But some days even the kingfishers don't have fish for dinner. Instead, they serve crayfish and frogs. This is on cloudy days, or when the wind is stiff and the water rough. On such days, even the keen eyes of the kingfisher can't see a fish or make out exactly where the fish is when he does see one. But on clear, quiet days, you should see him fish. He often dives from a perch fifty feet or more above the creek strikes the water so hard you'd think it would knock the breath out of him. But up he comes with his fish nearly every time. Of course he misses occasionally, but just think of seeing a fish that far away, under the water, mind you, and not a big fish, but a little minnow, only two or three inches long. 2. Under the Oven Bird's Friendly Roof Another great little farmer is the oven bird. We can't afford to miss him and his wife for anything 
and although we have to go to South America to meet them, we'll do it. So, here we are. The oven birds build a nest of clay, mixed with some hair or grass or real fine little roots. This nest, when it's all done, it takes a good while to build it, is so big you'd hardly believe it was the home of so small a bird. It's a dome-shaped affair, like a Dutch oven. In the United States we have what we call an oven bird, too, one of the water thrushes, but its dome-shaped nest is made of grass and leaves and has no clay in it. We will not include this bird among the feathered farmers. The oven bird of South America knows how to build its dome of clay without any scaffolding, which isn't easy. Oven Bird Doors and the Friendly Road While the big flamingos are so shy, the little oven birds don't care who sees them, provided they can see him first. This is possibly because they want to keep an eye on any suspicious movements, for they make it an invariable rule to build so that their front doors will face the road. But really I think they do this, not because they are suspicious, but because they want to be neighborly and arrange their homes so they can sit on their front stoop and watch the crowd go by. They not only have their doors where they can see what's going on, but they nearly always build near the country road or the village street, and in the most conspicuous place they can find, instead of staying off by themselves in those vast lonesome woods of Brazil where they lived before man came. When a nest is to be built, the oven bird picks up the first likely-looking root fiber or a horse hair, or a hair from an old cow's tail, carries it to some pond or puddle, and with this binding material works bits of mud into a little ball about the size of a filbert. Then he flies with this pellet to the place where the nest is going up. With clay balls like this laid down and then worked together, the two birds make the floor of their little house. On the outer edge of the floor they build up the walls. These walls they gradually incline inward, just as the Eskimos build their snow-block huts until they form a dome with a little hole in it. The last little ball they bring goes to fill that little hole, and then the house is done, so far as the walls and roof are concerned. Next, a front door is cut through the wall that faces the road. From the front door a partition is built, reaching nearly to the back of the house, shutting off the front room from the family bedroom. After the eggs are laid, Papa Ovenbird stays in the front room, or thereabouts, while Mama sets in the back room. The object of the little partition seems to be to protect mother and the eggs, and when they come, the babies, from wind and rain. When the four or five baby birds arrive, both Papa and Mama put in most of their time, of course, feeding them. The nests of the oven birds weigh eight or nine pounds. The work of these little feathered farmers and their wives reminds us in more ways than one of that of Mrs. Mason Bee but they evidently have quite different notions about housekeeping, for although their residences are so big, the oven birds would evidently rather build than clean house, while with Mrs. B it's just the other way. The nests of the oven birds are so thick and strong they often stand for two or three years in spite of the rains, but the birds build a new nest every year nevertheless. 3. The Mound Builders Another class of birds that have a fancy for big dome-like nests are the mound birds. We find them in Australia, the Philippines, and the islands of the South Seas. Their scientific nickname is Megapodidae, the big-footed. It's with their big feet that they pile immense heaps of leaves, twigs, and rotten wood over their eggs. And what for, do you suppose? To hatch them. 
this heap of material not only absorbs the heat of the sun but in decaying makes heat of its own these mounds of course contribute tons and tons of fertilizer to the soil but what interests the birds is that these warm heaps hatch their eggs it's a kind of an incubator system you see as it is with many tens of thousands of our own little chickens these days the baby megapodes are born orphans that heap of dead sticks leaves and earth is all the mother they ever know as soon as the mother birds have laid their eggs in the mounds and covered them up they go off gossiping with other lady megapodes and don't bother their heads any more about their babies why little bigfoot never says mama but it really doesn't seem to matter it's more of a question of sentiment than anything else for the babies get on very well by themselves when the time comes they not only make their own way out of the shell as all birds do but they work their way up through the rubbish heap and run off at once into the woods to hunt something to eat it's all right after all i suppose but if i were a little mound builder's baby i'd rather have a mamma that would stay around and go places with me wouldn't you there's one nice thing about these mamma mound builders though they're so neighborly and sociable it's like a regular old-fashioned quilting party to see them build a nest the birds look like turkeys and one of the species is called the brush turkey but they are no bigger than an ordinary chicken than a rather small chicken in fact when i tell you then that these mounds of theirs are often six feet high and twelve feet across in the widest part the middle you can see it takes good teamwork to put them up so a lot of the lady mound builders get together in woodsy places where there's plenty of leaves and twigs lying around and together build a mound one will run forward a little way rake up and grasp a handful of sticks and leaves i mean to say a footful and kick it backward the motion is much like that of an old hen scratching then another bird gathers a footful then another and soon they are all throwing the rubbish toward the same pile all as busy as a sewing circle but curiously enough nobody saying a word before the mounds are quite done they all begin laying their eggs in them as many as forty or fifty before they are through some species frequent scrubby jungles along the sea these scratch a slanting hole in the sandy soil about three feet deep and lay their eggs on the bottom loosely covering up the mouth of the hole with a collection of sticks shells and seaweed the natives say these birds before they leave go carefully over the footprints leading to this treasure house scratch them out and make tracks leading in various directions away from the nest and all species lay their eggs at night you see why don't you they're just that cautious such an egg from such a bird but if you should find one of their nests full of brick-red eggs you'd never guess who laid them they're so big away back in sixteen seventy three an english missionary to china who had stopped off at the philippines on his way wrote a little book when he got back home about where he had been and what he had seen and he just couldn't get over the wonder of the mound builders among other things he says in one place in his book there's a very singular bird called tabin what i and very many more admired admire in those days meant to wonder at is that being in body no bigger than an ordinary chicken it lays an egg larger than a goose's so he adds the egg is bigger than the bird itself four the swallows to make the acquaintance of either the mound builders or those dear little oven birds aren't they dear we must be travellers of course 
for with their short wings neither the mound builders nor the oven birds ever could come all the way up here to see us but another feathered farmer and like the oven bird a clay worker and most neighborly everybody knows the swallow like him the swallow is the little friend of all the world swallows of one kind and another are found everywhere almost everywhere that people can live usually where people do live and if all the soil they've helped pulverize and mix even since the days when the swallows built under the eaves and rafters of the ark was spread out it could easily make another egypt i do believe but speaking of the way swallows take to human society do you know where our barn swallows come from they were originally cliff dwellers away out west the early explorers found enormous collections of their nests plastered all over the perpendicular cliffs and along the bluffs just as soon however as the country settled up and men put up barns these little cliff dwellers deserting rocks and bluffs began building their bottle-shaped nests under the eaves the swallows live on insects including squash bugs stink bugs shield bugs and jumping plant lice and that's supposed to be one of the reasons for the curious fact that they left their ancient family seats they found so many more insects about the barns and the farmers fields and the gardens and the orchards tiny soil mills of the baby swallow haven't you often watched them and listened to them diving and chattering around the barn in their busy season that is to say in the spring and summer time then the air is full of insects and is fairly woven with their darting wings some keep busy picking up the insects that are always hovering about in a barnyard while others dash away to some nearby marsh or to the meadow or to the creek over the grain fields they go over the meadows and back again straight to the nest where downy babies are cheeping for them the parents feed them stop and chatter a moment and then off they go follow that one down to the marsh see how she flies high round and round in circles and then swoops in for an insect she missed him then she wheels darts up darts down to right to left there she's got him then off like an arrow to the nest the soft-bodied insects are chosen and chewed up for the babies while the parents eat the tougher ones and to help digestion they give the babies little bits of gravel although they don't use it themselves so in grinding up this gravel the baby birds help make soil before they are old enough to do any nest building you've noticed of course that all the swallows about a barn don't build under the eaves some build under the rafters inside the barn that isn't just a matter of taste it's family tradition the eave builders are descendants of the cliff swallows while the birds known to bird students as barn swallows build under the rafters but they don't take to the fine new modern barns all spick and span the barn swallows don't if there's an old gray barn with doors that never shut quite snug a board off here and there and several panes in the cobweb windows broken out oh just the thing says mr and mrs swallow and they turn their backs on the new barn and proceed to build their cute little nests of clay among the rafters of that old tumble-down affair in their preference for the old gray barns the swallows are like the artists the painters that mr dooley told about he was talking about artists to his friend mr hennessy i don't mean the kind of painter that paints your fine new barn said mr dooley i mean the kind of painter that makes a picture of your old barn and wants to charge you more than the barn itself is worth why artists and swallows prefer old barns the reason that artists prefer old barns is that they look better in pictures 
but the reason the barn swallow shows the same taste is that, with windows that have panes in them and doors that shut tight, you'd no sooner start to build a nest than, coming back with a pellet of clay or bringing a feather for the little feather bed, you'd be liable to find the door shut and you could no more get in until chore time than you could open the time lock in the First National Bank. And suppose there were babies and you just got to get back. You'd see it wouldn't do at all. But both the barn swallows and the old gray barns will be seen only in pictures before long, if things keep on, what with these new barns and the cats always trying to catch the few swallows there are left, when you're swooping low to catch a squash bug, say, and those hateful sparrows that tear your nest to pieces. And for several years swallows were killed by thousands to make ornaments for women's hats, until this shameful business was stopped by law. On the Pacific coast, if you're out there even as early as March, you'll see a purplish bronze swallow with bronze-green markings. These swallows make a specialty of orchard insects, and that's why, perhaps, they build under the eaves of the farmhouse rather than the barn. But like the rest of the swallow family, they think nothing quite so nice as a bed of feathers to raise babies in, and they know as well as the cliff swallows and the barn swallow that a barnyard is a great place for feathers. And besides, there's a man out there, in one place, that keeps a supply of feathers just to give away when the swallows are nesting. Watch him over on the hillside. He takes a little bunch of feathers and throws them up into the air from his open hand. A swallow skims by and catches one of these feathers before it touches the ground. But soon the word passes along. Here's that nice man with the feathers. And pretty soon there are half a dozen in the game. They flit closer and closer to that generous hand, seizing the feathers almost the moment they are in the air. Then one, bolder than the rest, snatches a feather right from the man's thumb and finger. The little rogue. By the way, do you know who that man is? It's Mr. W. L. Finley, State Ornithologist of Oregon. Our little brothers of the air, as Olive Thorne Miller calls the birds, are getting to be so much appreciated not only as the friends of man, but for their beauty and the usefulness of their lives, that both our state and national governments have laws to protect them, and such men as Mr. Finley are employed to look after their interest. Of course, he doesn't have to furnish feather beds for the baby swallows. He just does. Hide and Seek in the Library If you want to get better acquainted with ostriches, you should read Olive Thorne Miller's African Nine Feet High in Little Folks in Feathers and Fur. Carpenter deals with the ostrich in his How the World is Clothed and in his Geographic Reader on Africa. Johannot's Neighbors with Wings and Fins gives a chapter to giants of desert and plain, among which you may be sure he includes the ostrich. Allen, in writing about some strange nurseries, Nature's Workshop, tells why it is Papa Ostrich has to do most of the hatching of the eggs when the sun is not on the job. Lucas, in his Animals of the Past, speaks of ostriches and crocodiles as the nearest living relatives of, guess what, the dinosaurs. Yet look at the dinosaur and the strange adventures of a pebble and see if you can make out a good deal of the ostrich and the crocodile in him. But speaking of Papa Ostrich's parental duties, did you know that it is Mr. Puffin and not Mrs. Puffin who digs the family burrow? Arabella Buckley's Morals of Science tells that and many other interesting things about devoted husbands among the birds, including how Papa Nightingale feeds Mama Nightingale. 
In the Children's Hour, volume 7, page 310, you will find an interesting article about the puffins of Iceland. The Romance of Animal Arts and Crafts tells about one of the feathered clay workers, the nuthatch of Syria, and why he makes his nest look like a rock. These nuthatches love to build so well that they often make nests that they never use, and they often help put up nests for their neighbors. This book also gives interesting details about the hornbill and how and why he walls up his mate in her nest in the hollow of a tree. Father Hornbill, of course, gets all the meals for Mother Hornbill while she's setting. She simply can't get out, and you should see him by the time the babies are old enough to leave the nest. He's worn to a shadow. Rooks, it seems, do a little digging under certain circumstances. Salut tells us about it in his bird-life glimpses. In this book you will find a delightful description of Martin's building. It almost makes you want to be a Martin. It also tells about the work of the sand martins. You will hardly believe how fast they work. The house martin's nest is more elaborate than the swallow's. This book tells why the house martins begin work so early in the morning, and why they have to delay their nest building if the weather is either too wet or too dry. White, in his famous Natural History of Selborne, tells how worried he was because certain swallows just would build facing southeast and southwest. Birds, besides being workers of the soil, are great sowers of seeds. Darwin tells how he reared eighty seedlings from a single little clod on a bird's foot. What do you suppose he did that for? You just look it up in the index to his origin of species. Doesn't it seem funny that one of the little farmer birds, a burrower, should go into partnership with a lizard? There is one in New Zealand that does just that very thing. He is called the titi. What the titi does for the lizard is to provide him with a home in his burrow. But what do you suppose the lizard does in return to pay for his lodging? Read about it in Ingersoll's Wit of the Wild, in the chapter on animal partnerships. Do you know why the Phoebe bird so often uses moss in building her nest? And how the Phoebes that make green nests keep them green? And how Mrs. P. puts a stone roof on her house? You will find out all about it in Wit of the Wild. The same chapter, The Phoebe at Home, tells why the Phoebe bird took to building under bridges and why she builds in a carriage shed instead of a barn as the barn swallow does. Bird Life by Chapman is a guide to the study of our common birds. The beauty about this book is that it has seventy-five full-page plates in the natural colors, with brief descriptions, so that all you have to do is bring the mind picture of the bird you have seen alongside the picture in the book, and there's the answer. Nobody has written more delightful books on birds than Olive Thorne Miller. Little Brothers of the Air is one of them. You couldn't keep your hands off a book with a name like that, could you? Then there is her Children's Book of Birds, True Bird Stories, illustrated by Louis Agassiz Fretes, and Little Folks in Feathers and Fur, which, as you can see, goes outside the bird family. John Burroughs' Wake Robin deals not only with robins alone, but with birds and bird habits in general. But the greatest book about birds, The Wonder of the Bird and His Relations to the Whole Animal World, is very properly called The Bird by C. William Beebe, who is at the head of the bird department of the great New York Zoo. Among other things, it tells how nature practiced drawing, so to speak, for years before she could finally make a proper bird. If you have ever tried to draw a bird from memory and realize what a bad job you made out of it, you will sympathize with her. 
how they know that the earliest birds nature made as well as being very homely weren't at all smart not to be mentioned in the same breath with clever jim crow for example how a bird's swaddling clothes and his first full dress are cut from the same piece the very words of the book about certain birds that have one set of wings to play in and a new set for flying like a child wearing jumpers to save his nice clothes about the world of interesting things you can discover with the bones of a boiled chicken and so on for nearly five hundred pages and as many illustrations the most striking collection of pictures explaining birds that i ever saw end of chapter nine